Okay, well, if you have a Bible with you, or if you don't, you can grab one in the pew in front of you, and if you're using that Bible, the text for this morning is found on page 1043. Page 1043 in the pew Bible. While you're turning there, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this kind of apocryphal or legendary story. Elizabeth Elliot um, tells this story. Maybe you've heard it. It's about Jesus and Peter. Okay, so this is not found in some, you know, gospel you haven't read yet or anything like that. It's, it's legendary, okay, but helpful nonetheless. So Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's uh, widow, wrote this. One day Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like to carry a stone for me. I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any explanation, so the disciples looked around for a stone to carry, and Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulations for weight and size, so he put it in his pocket. Jesus then said, Follow me. He led them on a journey. About noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down. He waved his hands, and all the stones turned to bread. He said, Now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up. He said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time, Peter said, aha, now I get it. So he looked around, saw a small boulder. He hoisted it on his back, and it was painful. It made him stagger, but he said, I can't wait for supper. Jesus then said, follow me. He led them on a journey with Peter barely being able to keep up. Around supper time, Jesus led him to the side of a river. He said, now everyone throw your stones into the water. They did. Then he said, follow me, and began to walk. Peter and the others looked at him dumbfounded. Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who are you carrying the stone for? I don't know if you ever notice any of those motivational dynamics in your own heart. If you do, when you do, what do you make of it? Have you ever noticed that? Well, listen to what C.S. Lewis makes of it. Okay, this is an incredibly insightful quote. I know I'm just reading two quotes right off the bat, but these are so helpful. This one really shook me the first time I heard it a few years ago. Lewis says this, There are three kinds of people in the world. The first class is of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure, regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the categorical imperative, or the good of society, and they honestly try to pursue their own interests no farther than this claim will allow. They try, to, to sur- they try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax. But they hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life into time on duty and off duty, in school, out of school. But the third class of people is of those who can say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, their will. It is theirs. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. And because there are three classes, any merely twofold division of the world into good and bad is disastrous. It overlooks the fact that the members of the second class, to which most of us belong, are always and and necessarily unhappy. The tax which moral conscience levies on our desires does not, in fact, leave us enough to live on. As long as we are in this class, we must either feel guilt because we haven't paid the tax or poverty because we have. Our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, very, like, very much like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We approve of an income tax in principle. We make our returns truthfully, but we dread a rise in the tax. 
that he would ask any more of us. Okay, this much and no farther. We're very careful to pay no more than is necessary, and we hope, we very ardently hope that after we've paid it, there will still be enough to li- left to live on. He concludes, the Christian doctrine that there is no salvation by works done to the moral law is a fact of daily experience. Back or on we must go, but there is no going on simply by our own efforts. If the new self, the new will, does not come at his own good pleasure to be born in us, we cannot produce him synthetically. The price of Christ is something in a way much easier than moral effort. It is to want him. So, you probably know that tiresome business. You probably know the poverty of feeling like, well, I just want to pay my Christian duty service tax and then be free to do what I want to do. And I hope that tax doesn't go up. So, what can free us from that tiresome business and want Christ and for his will to be ours and to be free, like Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. What can do that and make us want him? Well, let's read our text because I think Jesus tells us in Luke 15, 11 to 32. We're jumping in here in the middle of this threefold parable. We looked at the first two parts of, of this story last week. Um, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then this is the climax of this three-part parabolic unit that Jesus gives in chapter 15 as he's addressing the Pharisees. So read with me, follow along as I read verses 11 to 32. And Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent, that citizen, sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. And was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for your amazing grace that you are the Lord who provides and you have provided for our deepest and greatest need in the life and death and resurrection of your Son. 
And I pray that we would see the grace of the Lord Jesus and hear it in such a way that it would change us and free us and fill us and cause us to celebrate and rejoice in that grace, to be humbled by that grace, to tremble with joy because of that grace. Lord, please fill us, your people, with delight in you over the greatness of your grace. Thrill us with your grace this morning that we would be melted by your word, by the gospel, that our pride would be melted, that our self-righteousness would be melted, that our self-pity would be melted, that our pettiness would be melted and replaced with a, with a clear and grand vision, a big vision of your majestic plan of redemption and the greatness of your grace, that we would be a people to the praise of your glorious grace, that we would marvel at your grace, that we would love you and praise you and proclaim your excellencies because you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. So, Lord, set us free this morning by your gospel, by your word. Would you set us free so that we get rid of the tiresome business of rival claims between ourselves and some moral imperative, even if it's your law? And we die and we live alive in Christ, alive to you, alive to your grace and empowered by your grace to live free. Lord, please speak. Give us ears in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is obviously a very familiar passage. Um, there's a lot here. Uh, please don't let the familiarity deafen you or, or dull you to this truth, even if you've read this passage a thousand times. You know, the text is popularly known as the prodigal son story, which means that for most people, the spotlight shines on the younger son. And it should. Okay, but not only should the spotlight shine on the younger son. Look at, look at verses 11 and 12. If you're, if you're following along and it's helpful, there's an outline in the bulletin. Um, may help you to help you to follow along. So verses 11 and 12 there give us a clue right off the bat what this thing is all about and who we should focus our attention on. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them, and then he's going to talk about the older of them. But all through it, the focus is on this man, this father, this amazingly compassionate father. So the focus is actually threefold. There's two lost sons and one amazingly compassionate father. So when Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, they're getting their knickers in a twist because he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. Well, they're like the older son. So... The spotlight shines on the older son at the end. And who's coming to him with ears to hear that really they're drawn to Jesus like a magnet? It's the sinners, the riffraff. So the spotlight is on the younger son because he's speaking good news to these people that have ears to hear. And overarching it all is the character of this gracious, amazing father, this man who had the two sons. So make sure you see that it's all three of those as we go through um, this parable. And we looked at 15, 1 to 10 last week. Those two, in a sense, set up and ramp up to this one. This is the climax. It gets the most ink. So here we go. Let's jump in. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Okay, we're pretty familiar with this story. We might be tempted to just read right past that. But people who heard Jesus share this parable in the first century would be shocked right there. If a younger son, even if an older son, but if a younger son came to his father and demanded his inheritance, he was basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. Just give me my inheritance now. You see how shameful this request is. You see how much freight is behind it. 
Okay, we're going to see a lot of shameful things in this story. And obviously, this is a serious honor-shame culture back then, huge issues at the center of social dynamics. And, and, you know, we might think we've gotten past this, but honor and shame drive us all the time. So we need to feel this shame so that we can see what Jesus is saying here. Now, responsibility went along with inheritance. He doesn't want any of those ties, any of those responsibilities. He wants full control, no strings attached. He wants no accountability. Just give it to me now, and I'm out of here. And so you can, you can start to see where the parallels are, are drawing already. Sin wants God dead. Okay, The younger son obviously hates the father. So the Pharisees, as they hear this, they would expect this father to slap this son in the face, maybe to beat him publicly, okay? And that way the father would protect his reputation, his honor, and he would guard the honor of other fathers and warn other sons from doing foolish things like this. But what does this father do? What's his response? Verse 12, he divides the wealth between them, older and younger sons. That also is shocking. That would be viewed as shameful. What kind of father is this? No one does this. His father does nothing to protect his honor. You don't grant this shameful request. You rebuke it. So he divides the property between them. Older son, firstborn, would get two-thirds because he would also have, in addition to the privilege, he would also have greater responsibility and, in a sense, would would run the estate. Younger brother, one-third. Younger son doesn't love his father. He doesn't honor his father. He only wants to use his father to get what he really wants and go after his own selfish desires. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. He was given his share of the property. How do you carry the worth of property with you? Not many days later to a distant country. You've got to sell it for cash. You've got to liquidate There's no eBay back then. There's no pawn shops. There's no Craigslist. He would have to sell in the village. Okay, In in this day and age, you've got lots of little villages. Sometimes we think of maybe the anonymity of a city. No, this is a village where everybody knows everybody's business. So this is a really shameful thing that's going on, and it's public. Everybody knows. And he he gets out of there not long after he receives his share. So he would have had to sell discount <laughs> cut rate prices. You know, Middle Eastern culture, they barter, they, or they don't barter, they, sometimes they do, but they go back and forth on the price. The, the more valuable something is, the longer it's going to take to agree on the place. This is a shameful, foolish sale. The entire village knows what's going on. They've watched him sell everything. They watched him head out of time. Just think, there's whispers, there's the scorn, there's the looks. Okay, behavior like this was not, it was shameful. This is, this is stuff that you're disowned for. You're cut off from the family. He is burning bridges with his father, with his family, with the village, his community. So if he wastes this, he's not going to have anything. Okay, then there's a shameful destination. So shameful sale, shameful destination. He's going off to a far country, a Gentile country. You just don't go there. And then when he gets there, he's a shameful steward. He squanders, look at verse 13, squandered his estate in loose, reckless living. He wasted all on Vanity Fair. Think Vegas. Shame factor doesn't stop. It keeps going. Verse 14, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So shame quotient. You thought it couldn't get any higher. It just keeps going up. How much lower can this guy go? Gentile country, begging from Gentiles. Apparently nobody's giving him anything. Nobody's giving him anything. He must have been begging. He's hiring himself out to a Gentile. He's feeding pigs. He's longing to eat pig food. So the younger son has become like a pig. He's starving to death, and this is just ultimate shame. Okay, so we're getting some great metaphors for the nature of sin and what it does to us here. And for what it's worth, our view of pigs, I don't know about you, but, you know, this is not Wilbur in Charlotte's Web. This is not, you know, your local petting zoo, the kind of clean, 
This is, these are nasty, unclean in both senses, unsavory creatures, and, and, and just repulsive to Jews. Then look at verse 17, what happens? But when he came to his senses, don't you love that description? He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I'll get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. Now, again, you need to feel the shame because you need to, you need to realize what it would take for him to be willing to endure and face the shame of going back into the village. He would be facing a ton of shame. The village is going to shame him, mocking, taunts. Even village children are going to be saying things, shunning, scorn, small-town dynamics here. And then there's his brother, okay? The, The father divided the inheritance between them, so guess who he's going to be beholden to? He's going to have to eat his brother's bread the rest of his life. I mean, talk about eating crow. So not only is he indebted to the father, he's also going to be indebted to his brother for the rest of his life. He hits rock bottom. He's willing to endure anything. If he's going to survive, he's got to come home. But do you notice his first thought? He's not thinking, oh, man. I used to buy $200 bottles of wine and eat surf and turf every night. He's not thinking of those meals. Man, I wish I was back in Vegas. He's not thinking about that. He thinks of his father and his father's good and generous character. And he's saying, just just make me a hired hand. I'm wretched. My father is good. That's a huge change from I wish you were dead. Okay, he had come to his senses, and he doesn't demand anything. He's asking for mercy. He's acknowledging his sin. He's asking for mercy. Now, according to Jewish expectation, this guy comes back. The only way that he would be able to have anywhere near his position as a son would be to, to literally pay it all back. How in the world is he going to do that? Take him more than a lifetime as a hired, hired hands were lower than the household servants. But he comes back saying, I don't want any privileges. I don't want any rights. I know I don't deserve them. Just don't even make me a household servant or an other, other kind of servant. Just make me a hired hand. So feel the weight of the cumulative effect of all of this shame that's going on in these verses. And the question we should be asking, I mean, th- this, is, this is like the most shameful way to describe a sinner. So the question then becomes, how does God respond to someone who's this bad? Enter the prodigal, okay? Look at the prodigal in verses 20b through 24. So the younger son got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. There's no binoculars then. He was looking. And his father felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He just came from the pigsty. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get out his hired hand line. And the father interrupts and he says to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, my robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. He's my son. Sandals on his feet. Sons wear sandals. Slaves go barefoot. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Okay? Can you imagine the talk of the town? This guy is not going to get out to his son without the town knowing. His servants would be following because they were there to hear the instructions. It's a dignified elderly man. So you can imagine the talk of the town as other people see the son on the horizon there and the father running out. Where's this father's dignity? Didn't the younger son disgrace his name? What's he been doing? What's he back coming back for more money? Is that what he's back for? So as the Pharisees are listening, you can imagine what they're thinking. 
What? Can't this guy ever do any justice? Can he ever act in a dignified way? Who is this guy? Complete reconciliation and honor for that pig of a son. For no reason. This is unjust. He has no regard for the law. On what basis can he do this? So what that the younger son came to his senses? So what he turned his back on, on the far country? He still has a debt that needs to be paid. How can that dishonor be rectified? He's got to pay. Look at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and he ran. I mean, you could translate this, raced and embraced him and kissed him. So, again, picture a small village, small town dynamics. Everybody knows everybody's business. Those kind of villages had an entrance. The father's been looking. The father feels compassion, and he runs. Older, dignified Middle Eastern men did not run. They didn't show their legs. They had robes, okay? They didn't have jeans on or whatever. So covering their legs was part of their dignity. It was part of their honor. Their robes touched the ground. And so if you're going to run, what are you going to do? You're going to expose your legs. That would be like exposing your nakedness, okay, in that culture. It's one thing if you're a soldier and you have to gird up the loins, gird up your loins, you're going to show your legs because you've got to run. That's one thing but not a dignified elder in the community. So he would actually be inviting scorn by doing this. But listen, this is what he's doing. This is so beautiful. This is why the gospel is at the center of this passage. It's just pointing to the cross. It's preluding the cross in such a powerful, beautiful way. He does this because of his love and compassion for his son. He does this so that he can get to his son before his son gets to the village that's going to heap shame on him. He is going to take the shame on himself running so that he can do it for his son. (laughs) He's going to welcome and reconcile his son before his son gets to the village and he gets the shame heaped on him by the village. So he actually takes the shame on himself in order to honor his son with reconciliation. So you see where this is going? So here's Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, telling the story who for the joy set before him, he despised the shame so that we could be brought in and our shame could be covered and we could be brought in as his sons and daughters and receive that honor and welcome that we do not deserve. So in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He who knew no sin, no reason for shame, no reason for anything, became sin for us, took on that shame so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. And only Jesus on the cross can vindicate the righteousness of God in pardoning guilty sinners. You know, the the Pharisees, in a sense, are right. This is unjust. How can he just sweep his sin under the rug and accept him back like this? He's got to pay. Well, Jesus is going to die on a cross so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is just a beautiful set up for the climax of the gospel, which is the gospel, gospel of Luke, which is the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross for us, in our place, for our sins. So God is not an indulgent father who winks at our sin and sweeps it under the rug. Okay, he can't give us the blessings of sonship because he's nice. That wouldn't be just. He does it by taking our shame and our punishment on himself, just like the father in this story. So by now you know who the real prodigal in the story is. Prodigal means, if you just look at it in the dictionary, it says, given to reckless extravagance, unrestrained in spending or using up one's means, characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure, lavish, profusely liberal, giving or or yielding abundantly, foolishly extravagant. It's the father who is prodigally compassionate and merciful and gracious. 
And it's actually the father's response that's the most shameful thing in the story, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees. Okay, they would say, you've got to scorn this son, you've got to shame this son, you shun this son, you make him pay. And he may not even have him back into his home for a while. You can sit in the town, you can, you can taste some of what you've done by getting that scorn heaped on you. And maybe after a little while, you can come groveling to me. Not with this father. Listen to what Kenneth Bailey says. Um, he's a scholar that's lived in the Middle East in, in peasant cultures for 50-some years. I, I don't know. He may have passed away by now, but he has a lot of insight because he's lived in settings like this. So he says this. As the father runs through the street, half the village runs after him. The conversation at the edge of the village takes place with a full circle of people standing around listening. The servants are clearly a part of the crowd, for the father turns to them in the road. There in the road. Everything that is said will soon be reported in every home in the village. The father's actions are a drama of reconciliation that can restore the boy to his home and to his community. After this scene, no one in the village can reject or despise him without rejecting or despising the father. He doesn't say to the boy, go clean up, shave, and get some decent clothes on. Rather, he orders the servants to bring the best robe and dress him. They are to honor him as the son of the house. The guests that night will recognize the robe and treat him in a respectful, respectful manner because of the clothes he's wearing. Does that sound like what happens when we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ? What in the world are we doing at the table of the Lord? We have no right except for his grace, and we're clothed with his righteousness, even as Matthew mentioned earlier. His righteousness is ours. So he's been fully restored, as Bailey says, to sonship. Last week I said it. It's the same thing here. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. So here's this prodigal father who hugs this stinking pig-scented sinner and kisses him over and over. Now, if you were here last week, and even if you're not, what's your view of God? Do you ever think of God as running toward you and kissing your stinking life with his grace and his love, rejoicing over you and celebrating your repentance? Is, is that, would that come up pretty quickly if someone, tried, if someone asked you to describe what God is like? Is this how you view your conversion? If you're in Christ this morning and you've come to Christ by his grace, is that your view of conversion and what happens in heaven? Is this how you view it when you repent and return when you've been wallowing in the mud of your sin or do you feel like maybe you need to kind of let God cool off before you can actually savor his grace again? This father is calling for a party. You've you got to realize this. Just like with the, the shepherd who lost the sheep, just like with the, the woman who lost the coin, it's the joy of the father that's being celebrated. <laughs> Celebrate with me. I'm throwing a party. So it's in honor of the father's joy. Yes, the occasion is the son has returned. So, we've seen the playboy, we've seen the prodigal, now the other lost son, verses 25 to 32, the Pharisee. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. That would feed the village. That was like a wedding feast sort of thing. You don't kill the fattened calf for just anything. This is a big deal, big party. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. There's peace. That's the same word for shalom or peace. So reconciliation has happened, which to this son is scandalous. So he becomes angry. He won't go in, which is shameful. His father comes out, begins pleading with him. He answers and says to his father, look. It's very disrespectful, just like it sounds. For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, it's not his brother, 
When this son of yours came who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, which was slander, by the way, how does he know that? Maybe it's a, you know, reasonable rumor, but that's all it can be at this point. He's devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. It was necessary. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So you probably see parallels here with the Pharisees. The father in the story has just received a sinner and is sitting down to eat with him. It's exactly what's driving the Pharisees nuts. Rather than joining his father, the son gets angry. And just like the Pharisees in reaction to Jesus and the sinners, here's another shame-filled moment. The son will not go in. The older son won't go in. That is publicly shameful. Um, That Bailey guy has has actually a a play. He has a whole book on this this, um, parable. And at the end, he has this little dialogue, this little play. Here's just a little section of it. And so the older, older brother's name is Adam, and then the father's father. So Adam says this, He's not my brother. He's a dirty beggar. Now I've got to share my portion with a beggar. Maybe if I ran away and spent the family's money on prostitutes, then you would love me. The father says, still, I would love you. Adam, I understand that you want me to refuse the company of sinners. Indeed, I do. But son, if I do that, I will have to avoid you. This older son, do you see it? He stayed around, supposedly, as this dutiful, faithful son, but he hates the father just as much as the younger son did. He's carried a grudge. He's been resentful. This son of yours, just bubbling up. The older son has no more interest in the father's honor than the younger son did. And here's what we need to catch. In God's eyes, that is a shameful reaction. God shows us, Jesus is showing us here what's truly honorable and what's truly shameful. He's saying this to the Pharisees and to all of us. He turns the tables on their definitions. So how should the father react to this pharisaical son? Again, they would expect you self-righteous, selfish, ungrateful. How dare you shame me publicly? You get in here. I mean, you can imagine kind of back behind the, the tent or back behind the, the house, you know, loud enough to really mean it and quiet enough to, so hopefully everybody doesn't see. That's not what happens. The father is entreating him. He's still patient. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And the Pharisees, again, they would have, they've got a bone to pick with everything. They would have been criticizing that as well. Pleading with your old... You got to beat him, rebuke him for shaming you like that publicly, not coming into the feast. He says, my son, my child, this intimate terminology rather than anger and reproof. Now, have you ever noticed that there's no ending to the story? It just kind of cuts off abruptly. Do you ever wonder why? Well, it's because at this point, obviously the, the camera is you know, turning from this scenario with older brother, and it points right back to the Pharisees. What are you going to do? Are you going to come in? Are you going to come into the party? So it leaves it hanging because Jesus is entreating still the Pharisees. But you know what? The Pharisees actually would eventually write the end of the parable in just a few months. The older son, Pharisees, enraged at their father, They're going to pick up a piece of wood and beat him to death with it. You are evil. You are unrighteous. Your blood be on me. I'll uphold justice. I'll restore honor. That's what they did. Grace can be infuriating. Remember Jonah? So there's irony here. 
He who could have beaten the self-righteous older son for his refusal to enter the celebration was, quote-unquote, beaten by the older son. And they did it thinking that they were righteous. And he was doing it for their unrighteousness. This is us. You remember that song, How Deep the, the Father's Love for Us? Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. This is us. And here this prodigal son, or I'm sorry, this prodigal father does it all for the sake of love. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, takes on human form, becomes a slave, even to the point of death, death on a shameful cross, and he willingly took it, despising the shame for spiritual pigs and spiritual prigs like you and me. For the joy set before him. That is prodigal, lavish love. That is, for God so loved this pigsty that he gave his only son. That whoever, whether you are a, a Vegas lost one or you are a buttoned up type A Pharisee lost son or daughter. If you would repent and believe in Jesus, you will not perish but have everlasting life. That is how prodigal our God is. He's willing to save, to die for and save younger and older brother types alike. So we should weep for joy for our playboy-like sin. (laughs) The thing is, we... I think most of us vacillate between the two, and we're guilty of both. <laughs> if there's anything that we can kind of hang our hats on, we'll, we'll play that self-righteous card. And then we'll do stuff that we're ashamed of, and we just kind of try to hide it over, and, you know, we're guilty of both. So we should weep for joy that our playboy-like sin and our Pharisee-like sin has been paid for. It is finished. And then we should weep for joy for such a prodigally compassionate Father and Savior who despised the shame to cover our shame and welcome us home and welcome us in. So there is more than one way to be lost. We need to realize that. Remember that Lewis quote? Three kinds of people in the world, not just two. You can be the rule-breaking kind of lost. You can be the rule-keeping kind of lost. The rule-keeping that is motivated all wrong, oriented, and aimed at controlling our environment. I do these things because if, if I do these good things, then there'll be a good result. When I control my environment, it's just a, a more sophisticated version of selfishness. But we need to see that down deep to the roots, the playboy and the Pharisee sleep in the same bed. You see it yet? Do you see the similar roots? Might seem on the surface above ground that these two weeds look vastly different, worlds apart, but they are the same rebel in different clothes. The playboy blatantly rejects God to pursue earthly pleasure. The Pharisee attempts to use and manipulate God to pursue earthly pleasure in the form of stuff like the praise of people, esteem, respect. Just religiously baptized cheap thrills. Same root, different fruit above ground, bitter fruit. Younger son, I wish you were dead. I don't love you. I want what's coming to me. I just want you to give it to me now. I want it. Do what I want you to do because I want it. The older son, I wish you were just. I don't love you. I want what's coming to me. I wanted what you could give me. I don't want to celebrate with you. I want to celebrate with my friends. And I'm resentful. Again, I want you to do what I want you to do because I deserve it. Again, using the Father. Both sons resented the authority of the Father. Both sons didn't care about the honor of the Father. They wanted out from underneath the authority of the Father, one by brash rebellion, the other by subtle manipulation. Okay, they both used the Father to get what they really wanted. And that's the same with us. So we are all one or the other, sinning by law-breaking, sinning by supposed law-keeping, 
And either way, immeasurable mercy has been extended to us. So don't think that you're in some fourth category, okay? It just doesn't exist. I mean, there can be a combination of the two, but, well, I thank God I'm not like the Pharisee or the, no, (laughs) that's not it, okay? Both of the brothers were lost. Only one of them realized it. So, we're all in one one or the other category. We tend to vacillate between the two places. So we need to hear what Jesus says to the playboys and girls and to the Pharisees. Okay? Some of you might be in the far country right now. And you need to come home for real the first time. And this is just conversion. This is trusting in Jesus coming home. Some of you may be really spiritual Pharisees, and you need to come in to the gospel celebration for the first time. And I encourage, if you're in that boat, come. Look at the character of the Father. Look at Jesus and come. And then for the rest of us, for those of us who do trust in Christ, as David Powelson warns, I've I've quoted this several times over the last few years, beware the defining characteristics of evildoers are always the remnant tendencies and temptations of those who believe. So we still get tempted to wander like the younger son and to get self-righteous like the older son. So we need this word, again, to free us from those ensnaring ditches. So to the prodigals, to the playboys, to the playgirls, we, we know who we are. Do you see, we need to be reminded, we should smell the pigsty. Sin makes pigs out of us. But look at the character of the Father toward pigs like you and me. Okay, you can buy the lies that the world's going to sell, that sin's going to sell, that Satan's going to sell. It's as old as the forked tongue in the garden. That freedom from God is life and liberty and happiness. It, I'm, it just, it's, it's spiritual suicide every time. And yet we keep buying it. So we need to come to our senses, right? Rebellion and sin is insanity. We're, we're running away from all we most need. So we should wake up and come home. Is anybody there right now that just needs to wake up and come home? There, there should be nothing that holds you back when you see the character of the Father. So real repentance leaves the far country and comes home. Just so that you know the difference between supposed, maybe just mere confession and true repentance, think about it this way. Imagine a man calling his wife from another city saying, I'm in the midst of an affair. You know, he's crying, he's tearful, he's confessing. And there's silence on the other line, on the other end. And then she says, are you coming home? You can cry all you want if you're going to stay in the city. That's not what the younger son did. He came home. And then for the Pharisees, um, a couple years ago, the Chinese New Year, I preached the gospel from this passage. And afterwards, someone came up to me, and I think this person is a follower of Jesus, and this person said, it's really interesting, this person said, I still think the older son was better than the younger son. What do you think? You ever feel that way? We are stubbornly, incorrigibly committed to works righteousness. We are spring-loaded and hardwired for self-justification. And it's very ironic that the older son who stayed home doing his duty was farther from his father than the younger son who went to a far country, came to his senses, and came home. That ought to sober us and cause us to look in honestly and look to Jesus and listen to what he says. So do you ever look around at the world? Is this kind of your orientation of life where you look around at the world? It is horrible. There is so much wrong with this world, and we should be righteously angry at times, and we should grieve and mourn. But do you have this, oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket, and just long for the judgment of God on certain people? 
Or do you look around at the world going to hell in a handbasket and long for the mercy and grace of God to break through and overwhelm people like it overwhelmed you? When people sin against you directly or indirectly, is your primary impulse that they need to just get taught a lesson? They need to get theirs. Or do you long that they would get grace while there's still time? Which would you exult in more? And I'm talking emotionally. When they, if they get their comeuppance or if they got converted. Older brothers and sisters think that by keeping the rules, they can obligate God to bless them. Their rule is keep the rules, at least most of the, most of the time, especially when you need or want something, and God will bless you which oftentimes is why they get really ticked off when they suffer. Nothing like suffering will kick up an older brother heart in you because you'll look around at all these people that aren't, they aren't as righteous as me and everything seems to be going fine with them. Do you ever see that in your heart? Do you want God or do you want God to just keep things peaceful in your life? We can make ourselves and our desires the center of the universe and God our errand boy, even if we're moral. We attempt to use him like a tool to get what we really want. So there's no difference between the younger and the older, just using different means to get what we want. So we need to repent of that and come in. Repent of those things and come home. So there's a million applications to this. But the bottom line is, enter into the shameless joy, (laughs) the glorious joy of your master. Matthew's going to come and lead us in singing a very appropriate song as we close, Come Ye Sinners. We've sung it before here. Um, I hope you love this song. Please listen to the words as you sing them. You're going to hear words like this, All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So wherever you are, I don't know, the Lord knows, Spirit of God knows, turn, let's turn from our unrighteousness, leave the muck-sniffing nose, pig nose behind, and also let's turn from our self-righteousness and leave our turned-up pig nose behind. And let's come and enter into the joy of our master. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would give us the joy of your salvation. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And I pray that we would thrill and exult in your shameless, extravagant, prodigal, scandalous grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.